Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. It's good to be with you again on this hot and sunny Friday afternoon. Today is August 12th. I'm joined by my two wonderful co-hosts, Bailey Perkins-Wright. Hello, Bailey. Hello, Andy. Thanks for being here. And uh, Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What is up, man? How are you? Good. Thanks for not leaning into the mic or, you know, really active, active be an active participant in the podcast here <laughs> wow that was that was aggressive that was aggressive i was i was looking at a lab result i was taking care of people how about that you know i don't know why that reminded me of this but i was talking um with a, a friend of mine yesterday who's had just attended like the global leadership summit thing a couple of weeks ago and one of the presentations he heard was about the impact of things in our environment, like even the as simple as the words that we read on influencing our actual behavior. And the example that he gave was some study that they had two groups of people, right? So group A goes into a room and they give them a list of a hundred words and they say, put these words into sentences and then put those sentences into paragraphs and like make a story. And then group B goes down the hall to another room, same thing. Here's a list of 100 words, but, well, their list is 120 words. Those extra 20 words were words about being old, like elderly, aged, those kind of things. So they don't tell them there's a difference. So they let them work on this for, you know, 15 minutes, and they say, okay, we need you to stop. I'm sorry. We need you to switch rooms. So they, each group walks to the other room. And the actual study was measuring the speed at which people walked from one room to the other. And the results when they, you know, aggregate all the data was that 95% of the people in room B that were exposed to the old words or words dealing with being older or elderly or aged, 95% of those people walked 37% slower. So it took them longer to walk. And they, you know, this is all randomized, did it time and time again. And the results seem to indicate that even being exposed to like words about being elderly and aged can make you move more slowly or those kind of things. And there was some just interesting fodder for conversations about, well, what does that mean for those of us who listen to podcasts a lot or read Twitter a lot? So, does it soak so- into our brains? Are, are you saying I'm fat because I watch too much Top Chef? Nope. Nope. Definitely not saying that. I'm saying that... Because um, that's what it feels like. <laughs> I, I would think you might be a better cook. Like there are some... You know, you read some books. You're reading a, a book right now. You've sent me several screenshots. Oh, man. For, it's so good. What book is it? Uh, this is that one that I mentioned on the podcast, I think last week, uh, called The Man Who Ran Washington, yeah, the yeah. Uh, biography, biography of, uh, I have six, I have uh, 60 pages left of 587 pages, and uh, um, it has been riveting. Well done. What would you say is the overarching vibe or theme of the book? Oh, that's that's a really good question. I would, I, I would say that... Um, that the view of Jim Baker, I think that it, I think the the view that I will come away with of of Jim Baker is that this is a guy who really was um, in in a good way emblematic of a kind of politics that um, served the nation well oftentimes um and um is is really hard to do now um baker was or is i should say he's he's still he's still with us um very very gifted at being able to sit at a table um and and negotiate directly with another person or um, as a mediator between two other parties and be very gifted at seeing what each person needs or needed in in order to come to an agreement so he might sit he might sit with you know the the dim congressional leadership and the republican congressional leadership um and and he might have a place in mind that you know as maybe you know the secretary of the treasury or the secretary of state or the chief of staff of the white house he might have a kind of 
an end game in mind of where he needs to be and where he wants to be or where the president wants to be or where foreign policy wants to be. And he was ex- just extraordinarily gifted at being able to see what each party would need to try and come as close to that agreement as possible. And he was never afraid to give away something right like he he was never afraid to actually negotiate not to be sure he would always try to make sure that his preferred position came out on top right that's what anybody does in a negotiation i think but um but very very good at saying all right here's i can i can let you have this so you can give me part of what i want um and so just i think maybe one of the best deal makers um in modern american political history particularly for someone who never not one time ever held elected office every single one of his jobs was uh was an appointment um but also someone who you know was very concerned with like his own very concerned with his own public image very concerned with trying to make sure that also because he 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 was extremely just politically talented and could kind of tell when when stuff was going to go bad and he was very good um sometimes fairly sometimes maybe less so at making sure that he was almost never the one kind of left holding the bag when when things kind of went went sour but when he was in charge of it they they rarely did um you know um just i mean just really a fascinating figure and someone that for you know certainly is not perfect and is someone on who with whom you know i would have had at the time and and still have you know any number of pretty strong disagreements on policy. Um, his goal was always progress, right? Like we need, like we need to get something, we need to get something done, right? Um, and he was never so wedded to ideology that getting something done proved impossible. Well, it sounds like a fascinating book. I admit that was a lot longer of a response than I anticipated. My point in my story was. You know, when we read a bunch of uh, angry stuff on Twitter, we probably internalize some of that anger and then are more curmudgeon in our in our everyday life. So we should be mindful of what we're feeding ourselves. And on that note, listeners, thanks for being here and feeding your life with Let's Pod This. We'd like to make this soothing and happy and very helpful to your advocacy needs, help you be more informed as voters and as constituents of this state, a better neighbor to your neighbors, a better friend to your friend, and a better family to your families. The more you know. Da, da, da. All right. Well, anyway, let's talk about uh, things that make us angry. Um, let's begin with the fact that the uh, there's a lawsuit filed this week in Oklahoma State Court by the um, Purple Heart Commission alleging it's against the governor. And it basically alleges that the governor violated state law when he appointed a new member to the Veterans Commission um, to, to lead that. So the Oklahoma Military Order of the Purple Heart and former Veterans Commissioner Larry Van is it Shiver said that Stitt um, didn't fill the vacancy on the board with people that were recommended, which is supposedly required by law. And so I think, you know, uh, Bailey, this is the latest development and kind of an ongoing saga of several veterans groups and several veterans individuals, well, leaders of those groups, uh, many of whom were political appointees from the previous governor, some I think even by Governor Stitt, who are really taking umbrage to some of the governor's decision-making. Do we think this is going to affect Governor Stitt's election at all or his like electability in the eyes of veterans? Will he lose the veteran vote? To be honest, even if he did lose um, that segment of the voting block, I don't think it would be strong enough to affect the outcome of the election, right? Um, Because the governor's opponent in November has an uphill challenge of securing and motivating its base, right, or or the candidate's base uh, of the left to show up to vote on top of securing votes on the right, right, which is not impossible, but it is an uphill challenge. So, and then with straight ticket voting, I don't foresee 
Um, there, that even though there may be people who would be upset by decisions being made, there are so many Oklahomans who show up and say, I want to vote for one party and then leave. And so they may vote in that way already, right? And so I don't see that. Of course, it's never good to upset a segment of uh, your voting block. But unless this turns into mobilization, it likely wouldn't hurt um, his reelection likelihood, right? Um, and then also, I'll say on this note, like, the governor is used to being able to appoint who he wants into whatever position. I mean, we've only seen a couple of instances so far where there's been specific qualifications of who he has to appoint to a certain area. Like he, he clearly hasn't been shy of going against, you know, the professional grain on appointments, right? We saw that with the attorney general appointment, right? The American Bar Association came out strongly against the person that he nominated to be attorney general. And he still made the appointment anyway, right? Um, we saw that with the um, the Department of Health to the point where things had to be shifted in the qualifications to get the person that um, he wanted in that role, right? And so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out if the law says you have to hire uh, or, or select someone from this list of nominations you know, will there even go be some back end changes well, so <laughs> to, that's to what, for? Yeah, there's an article in the Oklahoman that says that state law requires that the seat that was previously held by Van Shriver is supposed to be filled through a process in which the governor picks an appointee from a list of five qualified candidates provided by the executive board of the Purple Heart. Um, so this is similar to like the judicial nominating process right where the judicial nominating committee puts forth three names and the governor picks from those three so in this case the uh, order of the purple heart puts forth five names the governor picks one of those and he didn't he picked somebody else who is a purple heart um recipient but, but just not from that list not yeah. that list and so the five people who were on that list are all plaintiffs in this case being like hey they nominated us and he just picked someone and the law says he's got to pick one of us. He didn't pick any of us. And um, the governor says, well, it doesn't matter because the the ordered Purple Heart was ineligible to submit names for consideration because it hasn't met some specific requirements. But to my, from what I can find, it did not, um, he did not say what it was. And I don't know exactly what he's right. basing that on. Yeah, this is this is the latest example of the governor, maybe due to his lack of prior political experience or never having voted, is that uh, being confused on what the branches of government do. And and so the governor uh, seems to think um, often that he as the governor is allowed to interpret laws. He's allowed to interpret maybe when someone is in violation of their statutory requirements, that he's allowed to decide when something is constitutional or when it's not. And unless there's something specific in this law that says the governor gets to decide whether the order of the Purple Heart and their 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 board is in compliance, he doesn't get to determine whether they're eligible to submit names, right? Like, I um sorry, I just scrolled down farther. I thought that was the end of the article, but there was a graphic, and then it kept going. And it does say what exactly the governor is alleging that the order of the Purple Heart did not do. So what he is, is saying that they are ineligible to submit nominations because they haven't filed all of the audits and reports they're supposed to in the time they're supposed to specifically is that they um, are supposed to submit uh, on or before January 1st of the year in which the organization's appointees term expires. Those to submit to state leaders, copies of recent performance and financial audits of the organization. So, so does does the statute say that if they fail to do that, the governor can appoint whoever he wants? Um, I don't know about that, but they're saying, well, they didn't. Because that's what he's alleging. Before, yeah, they're, they're, the governor's saying, well, they didn't submit them for Van Shriver. Like this, the order Purple Heart didn't submit them, um, and his term expires. But Van Shriver and his attorney are saying, well, they're not due until next July because 
that's not when his term doesn't expire until then. So like, it's like a interpretation. Right. Well, so this is pretty clear. I'm sure they operate on the fiscal year of June 1st through or July 1st through June 30th. And we're still in the middle of this fiscal year and they, his term doesn't expire until next year. So they wouldn't be able to submit those audits until after that year's over. We're not there yet. So you, right. And and it seems, it, it seems to me that the appropriate person um, to interpret what this means is in fact not Kevin Stitt. Um, it would be either, either be a court or the attorney general of the state of Oklahoma in an official attorney general's opinion about what the statute means and whether or not the board would be judged to be in compliance. And if they're not in compliance, whether that gives the governor authority to appoint whoever he wants, whether they're on the list or not, right? Like, you don't like Governor Stitt seems to think that like he just gets to do like whatever he wants and that if he thinks someone else is not following their obligation or they're not meeting their responsibilities then he's just automatically allowed to do like whatever the hell he wants and i'm sorry that's like that's not how state government works that's not how most organizations work and he doesn't just get to make up the rules as he as he goes along right well and and scott i mean i hear that but the reality is, is we have seen cases of where interpretations by the law did not align in favor of the way that the legislature or the governor's office expected an interpretation. So the legislature just went in and fixed it, right? Um, and also, I mean, the legislature is in a special session, right? And I know they have to only abide into the call of the session, but calls can be you know, extended for whatever reason. So it would not surprise me even as we go into this next legislative session, if there is a bill that amends this process, right? Or adds extra features that allows for um, the flexibility for the governor to appoint the person that he wants in that position, right? Because we've seen it done before with um, the uh, the absentee voting in the, the signatures, um, whether or not that was in statute. And then the legislature was like, well, we're gonna make it in statute, right? <laughs> so no, there for- have been workarounds in the past and it wouldn't surprise me if, if there was a change in statute to align more with the governor's interpretation on this. I hear you. The only reason that I would maybe disagree and say that it would surprise me is because I would characterize the legislature's attitude toward the governor right now as mostly pissed offedness. Uh, right. Like they've been, they've been, I mean, last session, I feel like there was no love lost between the, between the governor and the various houses. So maybe they'll give him this authority. But I think recently, um, I mean, even again, even as recently as last session, um, we've seen some, some leadership in, in both houses saying, man, we've given the governor a lot of authority and maybe we need to claw back some of that, right? Like we gave him authority to ap- appropriate all of this money that we were given for, uh, that we were given for, uh, uh, COVID relief and he, and he either hasn't done it or has done it improperly. So we're going to, we're going to take some of that authority back. I see what you're saying. And you're hundred percent right that it's entirely, it's entirely possible, maybe even likely that they're going to say, Hey, uh, Jay, Kevin wants to be able to apport the, uh, appoint the, the, the leadership here. Let's just give him the authority to do that. But I don't know that it's as likely as it would have been early in his term. But you know, the legislature is a, you scratch my back. I scratch your back kind of place, right? Like, so even though on this one issue, there's some beef, but if there's something that someone strategically wants to get done in exchange to get something else done, that, that constant trading is, is always happening in the legislature, even when there are moments of beef in this one area. So um, I don't know that, you know, tomorrow is the day where they will have, you know, super beef, right? <laughs> It, it varies by, you know, time over time, because sometimes they have a cooling off and then they're back together. And then the next minute they're, it's like, you know, siblings well, here's, <laughs> who are in so, different places, like one minute they're fighting and the next minute they're working together. And, you know, so I think so that dynamics a, in the capital. Here's a question. And it's, 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 I mean, it's related to this, but we'll keep on going. Is he going to win reelection? The governor, yeah is is he is he going to win re-election? And I say this because there's some new polling out this week. There's some polling out from 
change research now i'm gonna i will stipulate uh that change research according to 538's pollster ratings as a democratic leaning pollster uh and they use a different polling methodology than several uh others they do uh they do uh some online they do a lot more online polling as opposed to traditional uh phone calls that has pluses and minuses to be sure um but they uh they released a poll this week a recent poll of 2079 likely voters in oklahoma which is a pretty good sized sample uh likely voters to not registered voters this is a likely voter model uh, and among likely voters his approval rating has fallen by 12 points in the last seven months um, so he is down from a 54 percent approval rating that was in january uh down to a uh 43 uh down to a 42 percent approval rating he's now at 42 uh 42 approved 56 percent disapproved so he's underwater by 14 points on approved disapprove um, a majority of voters, 57% of voters, likely voters in this model, uh, say that the word corrupt describes Stitwell. Um, and that's 30% of Republicans uh, say that the word corrupt describes him well. Um, in a four-way matchup, uh, Kevin Stitt gets 42% of the vote. Joy Hoffmeister gets 34%. Uh, Libertarian Natalie Bruno gets 6%. And Independent Irvin Yen gets 4%. And another 14% are undecided. Uh, in January, uh, this same poll had Stitt up 58 to 32 over uh over joy hoffmeister so i'm not sitting here saying we need to change like who's the favorite um i think you know a lot can happen between now and november voters are going to tend to come home uh, there's been a lot of scandal recently but i mean i don't think no matter how red the state i, I don't think you want to be underwater by 14 points and approve disapprove and only leading your democratic opponent by six points um in in the second week of august before an election well, but we also have to think about structurally about Oklahoma's voting system, right? Because the ways that our election system is in play between um, how we allow straight ticket voting, um, how we only allow um, a few days for early voting, you know, some of the barriers of the absentee voting, all of those different things make it almost for his election to lose, right? Like he would like, it, it would be easy for him to win in November just on the structure alone of who often turns out to straight ticket vote, right? Um, and also our low voter turnout numbers. It's going to be, nothing's impossible. So like if, Joy Hoffmeister is able to activate those 12% of people who have now moved to the disapproval, you know, rating in that likelihood of more likely voters. I mean, that could, um, you know, raise the likelihood that she could have a shot in November, but is going to take that extra work to activate those voters who are displeased, right? Um, and it's who can get the most amount of people to show up in favor, right, against um, the incumbent? Because it really is his to lose. Yeah. No, Bailey, I agree. I mean, turnout matters. Um, and I know some of our listeners have received um, emails from Let's Fix This. And if you did, you saw a graph this week in my email um, that shows the margin of victory in gubernatorial elections between the two highest performing candidates. So it's always been the Republican, and the Democrat, um, dating back to 1970. So I ran the numbers um, and looked at every governor's election, 1970 through 2018. And it goes up and down, right? The margin of victory, obviously in years where it's an open seat, it is much closer, right? So 2018 was um, in many ways closer than it is, um, than it might be in a year like this. Um, where one of them is running for re-election. However, the average over the last 50 years, even as voter registration has increased, um, the average has remained pretty close to the same. Um, and it's the average margin of victory is only 142,000 votes, which sounds like a lot. Um, but in 2018, like 940,000 people that are registered did not vote, right? So turnout matters. We can, the election could be, very, very close. And I think we will see that it is um, a lot closer than probably, as, as Scott said, a lot closer than Stitt's campaign would like. But I think that 
Straight ticket voting will play a huge role. Republicans vote straight ticket at a higher rate than Democrats do. And even if every Democrat votes for Joy Hoffmeister, which won't happen, but even if they did, the Democrats still suffer like almost a two to one um, deficit in voter registrations, right? So um, turnout matters. If the Dems can get more folks to vote, it looks good, better for Joy. Rising independents, right? Because independent yep. voters are also going to make a difference in the selection cycle because they don't have a straight ticket option. They have to right. check a box. And so there are going to be another factor. Can Superintendent Hofmeister drive enough independent voters as well as as well as the frustrated Republican voters right. <laughs> to turn out to get to that, you know. 142k number that Andy was talking about. I do think the one thing that we will almost definitely see in this election is that the winner does not get a majority of votes, right? I don't think whoever wins will get more than 50% of votes. And I and I want I want people to hear that because when we think about who wins elections, we think whoever gets the majority of votes and we mean, we often mean that as like more than 50%, but that's not what happens in elections like this. The winner will very likely be someone who gets, you know, 40 something percent, could be even as low as the 30s, right? Like he could get like 37% and Joy could get 36% and the other two could get, you know, 20 and 20 or something. That's possible. And that means that the the will of that, that means that the majority of people did not pick the winner right this is a problem with our election system when we have a what's called a first past the post so like whoever gets the most votes wins um or a plurality voting they will win a plurality but not a majority alternative voting systems like ranked choice voting help solve this where you could come in and vote for as many candidates as you want in whatever order you rank them, right? I like this person first, second, third, and then I don't like this last person at all. And that way, when the votes are tabulated in subsequent rounds, every voter's uh, or more voters' preferences are expressed and we get a better picture of who voters actually want. Uh, And so I think this is one of those elections that is knowing that the issue of ranked choice voting is growing in popularity and importance across the country and certainly here in Oklahoma. Um, and we'll see it being used in Alaska um, and on the ballot in Nevada and several other states. It'll be used in Maine as well. Um, Oklahoma is going to be a, a excellent demonstration case for why ranked choice is a better system than our current system, because we're going to end up with someone who most people don't want, but because they got more votes than the other candidates, they win, if that makes sense. And Andy, I'll, I'll say too, like turnout is critical for the next couple of elections, for the election that's coming up August 23rd, as well as the November election, because it is going to be a numbers game of, to your point, not the majority, but which candidate, which candidate can get enough people to show up for them, right? Because we hear oftentimes, oh, my vote doesn't matter, my vote doesn't matter. It's going to matter in this state superintendent race, in particularly in this runoff, right? It's going to matter in uh, potentially uh, the labor commissioner race, right? Um, it's going to matter definitely in November in the gubernatorial race, right? It made the difference in the AG race uh, back in June, there was just what, what, like a couple of hundred votes that made the difference in who's going to be our next attorney general in Oklahoma, right? And so it's vital that people don't take the August election for granted and this November election because things could change just by sheer number of who shows up for which candidate. What do we know? What do we know about people who show up? Decisions are made by them. That's right. Right. Well done. Well, uh, friends, I'm sorry to tell you, but there's an enormous teacher shortage in Oklahoma, and I think it's around the country. But no, there's not a teacher shortage. Right. And so people are like, oh, this is suddenly we have a teacher shortage. And, you know, our friends at OEA and are like, oh, no, this isn't new, you guys. Do you remember a few years ago we had record numbers of emergency certifications? And many of those folks are still in the classroom or now are leaving because they're sick of 
of um, not being supported by the state government. So I think the latest estimate that I saw, I think on Channel 4, on KFOR in Oklahoma City, there's Oklahoma still needs more than 3,500 teachers to be hired, to be fully staffed. And that says nothing about other educational positions, right? So um, support And there's staff. a number of factors that go into that, Andy. Like, because I know people are probably wondering, like, didn't we just have a teacher pay raise? But the reality is, is, A, we have to keep pace with the competition around us. I see billboard ads all the time for Dallas saying, come teach in our school district. Our starting pay is going to be 60K for you, right? Um, so it's not just about resting on our laurels, but beyond teacher pay, you know, not being competitive enough of where it needs to be, there's also a lot of stress that has come out post-pandemic, especially for so many educators, right? Um, from the policies on masking, right, that forced many teachers to leave the classroom because they may have um, pre-existing conditions and, and other things that may have um, affected their ability to, to get COVID. I mean, we lost teachers to COVID, right? Like that has to be recognized and discussed, right? Like we did not do everything as a state to keep our educators safe and protected so they could teach our babies, right? And also being a teacher is dangerous, right? Yeah. Um, you have a risk of getting shot, right? Like school shootings are uh, uh, an, a tragic, entirely preventable, um, but persistent reality in the United States. Um, but even even aside from that, um, we've we've made education even more dangerous because right now maybe the hottest political battleground in the, in the United States are school boards, right? And we're seeing that right here in Oklahoma. People threatening violence at school board meetings, threatening violence against school board members, violence against teachers. Um, you know, even the current state uh, secretary of education, Ryan Walters, who is running to be a state superintendent and replace outgoing state superintendent, Joy Hoffmeister, um, is is running on this, like, I mean, I don't know. It's, you know, you know uh, in two 2000, in, in a presidential debate in 2011, in 2008, uh, Joe Biden said that anytime uh, Rudy Giuliani opens his mouth, it's just a, not, a noun, a verb in 9-11, um, which is like, I think, one of the better like political zingers uh, of, the, of the last 20 years. Um, I think anytime Ryan Walters opens his mouth, it's just, uh, you know, a noun, a verb, and woke mob, noun and verb, or critical race theory. And sometimes it's just woke mob, critical race, race theory, and indoctrination without a noun or a verb. I don't think he's an English teacher. Um you know, and 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 that hurts the morale people, of the classroom. Well, it hurts the morale of the classroom, but it also it also um, in incites um, violence on on the part of people um, who who don't realize that that you know Mr. Walters is just sloganeering um, and 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 trying you know people don't realize people don't realize that Ryan Walters actually knows better, right? He's just trying to he's just trying to win an win an election. Um, and 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 so I think when you put all of that together, it's a recipe for like, you know, people. I'm, I'm going to get screamed at. I might get shot. Oh, and by the way, the pay's not great. You know, <laughs> no thanks. I'm going to go do something else. And I mean, so all of these different factors just make going into education unappealing. I mean, we heard what was this last year or two years ago? I think it was last year of institutions even dropping their education programs, right? I think it was Oklahoma City University dropped its education program because of low enrollment and it just, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze for um, getting educators through their, their, their pipeline, right? And so we're, we're seeing it all the fronts. Like it's hard to recruit people to go into education and become certified to become teachers. And it's hard to keep people in the education system for uh, the reasons that we described are the, are the top ones, right? So, um, and, I, and I saw that there was um, some uh, post from uh, Representative McBride, who is the um, Education uh, Appropriations Committee Chair for the House, 
where he's been pushing for increased uh, teacher retention funds, like giving like $4,000 bonuses to uh, recruit teachers in this critical time. Um, and, and when we don't have an adequate number of educators um, and quality educators that, that, and I'm not saying those who are currently in the system are not quality, but we need more people who have, you know, the training and the pedagogy and understand um, classroom environments to be able to pour into our babies and build those relationships and trust, that then hurts how students are able to perform in the classroom and their preparedness for our workforce, for our military, right? All of the above. And so it hurts so many things when our children don't have the things that they need. So that teacher shortage affects everything and touches everything about our, our communities and the preparedness of our babies. Yeah, that's right. And I don't want to be a negative Nancy about education as a whole. I think certainly all of us here on the podcast, and I know our listeners have a huge heart for education, specifically public education and why it's important. We are all who we are today because of the influence and the role of teachers in our lives for decades, right? To make us who we are. And we, those of us who have kids value that, you know, my kids are excited about their new teachers um, and their public schools. And I think it I would love to hear from the many teachers who listen to the show. Um, please tweet at us about why you are a teacher. And, and for those of you who are still in the profession, even when it's tough, even in the difficult times and difficult years, what keeps you going? Because um, I want to know. Yeah, I mean, you can be real if you're like, you know, I'm still going, but my tank is on empty, uh, whatever it is. But I would love to uh, love to hear that. So listeners, if you want to chime in, please uh, hit us up on Twitter at let's fix this. Okay. Well, and there was a um, panel discussion, I believe in one of the, the news stations hosting and superintendent Robinson Woods powerfully talked about um, why people stay in the trenches for our babies and who it impacts. Right. And so I encourage y'all to find that clip because it's been shared so many times on Twitter and apparently TikTok as well, um, where she really, uh, breaks it down that like it's about showing up for the kids who need that caring adult that needs somebody to tell them that you know they're proud of them and that they can do it right they're there for um the kids whose only shot in life of having uh, an opportunity to succeed is through that classroom experience, right? Um, and so if you can find, if you can see that clip and, and Andy, I'll make sure I share with you so maybe we can retweet it through Let's Fix This so that everyone can see it. That, that That's a powerful clip that to me echoes why so many people um, who are educators, who continue to be educators through these tough times um, remain. And one thing I wanted to lift is like the governor's office was, um, really touting the fact that uh, we have $2.8 billion in savings based on um, the ways that they've accounted for um, revenue collections and things after this uh, past fiscal year. And we're still seeing challenges in our, you know, public ed system. There's still healthcare challenges and other needs um, that we need those investments in our communities. And so that's definitely something that, you know, I hope our listeners, as the election cycle continues, having conversations with our elected leaders about we got 2.8 billion sitting in our coffers as savings, you know. There are things we could do with that to ensure that we're, you know, moving our education system um, in a in a more positive direction. That we're providing that relief and those incentives to, you know, recruit teachers and, and all of those different things. So, you know, just as a side note related to education funding, you know, several months ago we talked a lot about the the class wallet um, thing, and there's you know a federal audit that said basically the state did not have enough oversight of the emergency relief money. And they used this Florida based company to like manage purchases and essentially like $650,000 was misspent. Right. 
they no was it that much no it was, no it was more than that however much it was it was it was a lot of dollars i guess it was hundreds of thousands that were went to non-educational items like smartphones and tvs and christmas trees and barbecue grills and all kinds of stuff right the state is suing class wallet for their role in this but i don't get they're only suing them for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for breach of contract maybe that's all they're able to but i was like wait so the state didn't didn't use the oversight tools built into the system and it allowed people to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and then you're just going to sue the little company who did what you told them to do but i think this is a little bit of blame shifting and also is does not get our taxpayer money back i mean it's just like we've no i mean it's like we've talked about over and over again right for a guy who ran on i'm the ceo the buck stops with me somehow they uh Somehow the buck never stops at the governor's office. I wonder collectively or, how or or any of his appointees. Right. I wonder collectively how many barbecue grills and smokers the state has purchased in the last two years. Right. Between uh, these individuals and Swadleys and who knows who else. Hopefully, the families that bought smokers make better barbecue than Swadleys. Well, uh, folks, we're nearing the end of the episode, but we would be remiss if we did not mention the earth-shattering news this week um, that former President Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago was raided by the FBI. I'm sure as you're listening, you are aware of that and probably know as much as we do, and that's that his home was raided by the FBI. Um, Today, just before we started recording, they released the search warrant and the list of items that they retrieved. It is extensive. It doesn't tell us exactly what the documents are because a bunch of them are top secret. And if you're not familiar with like security clearance hierarchy, um, you should go look it up on Wikipedia. It's actually really fascinating. Um, And they break through the levels where it's like controlled, unclassified, public trust, confidential, secret, top secret, and then compartmented, right? So it's like top secret, sensitive compartmented information which means it's like top secret and then they put into special buckets so you have to have access to only that bucket (laughs) and it's like code word clearance right like if you don't have the code word right then you're not you're not cleared into it even if you have the highest level security clearance you have to have the code word that gets you into that particular file or topic or whatever right so an example that you will see if you look at the list of items is the acronym sci that stands for sensitive compartmented information and as i understand it right like having top secret um sci clearance means that they have access to um information about design or stockpile information about nuclear weapons, nuclear targeting, communications intelligence, um, those kinds of things. And then um, there are some other like higher levels, like if you're working with the president or vice president, there's another level and Department of Energy is a separate level, but these are all essentially the highest level of security documents that he took from the White House to Florida Scott, I have a question for you as a medical provider. If you were to leave your current employer, are you allowed to take any of the medical information that you have compiled over the last however many years? Just take it with you to your house in another state? No, is the short version. I mean, if I was to leave my, I mean, I see the point you're making. I mean, if I was to like, you know, leave my current practice um, and, and and open a new practice or started a new practice and my patients wanted to continue seeing me, um, they would either have to bring me their, record, their records or then I would have to request a release of records to get them sent to me. Right. The I could have well, just, I can't just take them. You can't just put them in boxes and load them on a plane and fly them to Florida. Well, and you certainly couldn't take any proprietary information from your hospital with you to your next practice, right? Like, that's right. The, you can't take the, let's say the, the codes to get into um, certain imaging sections of the hospital where um, heavy metals are stored, right? Like those kinds of things. Not that Scott has those, but if he did, you can't take that stuff. Bailey, even you, um, you know, working in the nonprofit world. Many nonprofits have proprietary information about, uh, maybe not finances, because most of that's public, but 
you know, business um, secrets, strategic plans, certainly in the private sector, that's the case, right? I've worked at a number of uh, organizations where you are exposed to confidential client information and you can't take that or share that with other people. And none of that has anything to do with nuclear weapons, which is like a big fucking deal. So we don't yet know exactly what it was, but in order for this warrant to happen, they had to present hard evidence about exactly what they're looking for and exactly where it would be. And it really was a pretty somewhat quick in and out visit. Like they went in, they got it, they left. Um, and now I think we all wait, but. Well, and before the podcast even started, we talked about, you know, what he could have done with the information. But I think even the issue takes a step back of the fact that you had information that you were not supposed to have that are top secret documents or classified information of the United States violates <laughs> the things that you, you swore an oath to protect, right, um, in office. And so that in itself is even a core issue of a, a need for accountability, even though people are up in arms of however you know, feelings they have for this specific person, right? They're missing that rule of law piece that people allegedly have for other folks, right? <laughs> Bailey, Bailey, laws and oaths are for suckers, for losers and suckers. So if, if we could just focus on doing the right thing rather than doing the political thing, <laughs> the world could be so much better and then there would be less emotions when people are held accountable for the rule of law, right? Um, and so this is one of those scenarios to where um, even though it, it shouldn't be politicized, like it, it's becoming politicized, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think I was speaking for me, you know, the harm or the perceived harm that this does for the safety of America is really been bothering me the last couple of days since this came out where I just keep thinking like, Oh my God, what if like, what if it's the worst case scenario? And hopefully it's not, but what if it is like our safety as a country is now less than it was, you know, five years ago. And that for for very petty, selfish reasons. And that part really like gets my goat. That makes me really angry. Like on behalf of just the American people, even those I don't disagree, that I dis that I do disagree with, right? Like we can disagree on stuff, but this other joker just jeopardized your safety for our veterans of, you know, all our, our uh, active service members around the world. Like all this stuff is really disturbing. But the uh, safety of FBI agents, right? I, I think that's another concern that I have with, the rising ties to a person, regardless of what they do and don't do and the severity of what they do and don't do, right? Um, because we saw words led to a all on attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, right? Following the rule of law and the warrants of getting the things that belong to the United States of America, is leading to people literally showing up armed to governmental employee agencies trying to harm them, right? This precedence is unusual and we should, in the name of maintaining our democracy, have to take these acts seriously because this person's actions or things connected to this person continue to lead to people to act to violence, right? And that's not okay as well. That puts our lives in jeopardy as well. Mm -hmm. And I hope, I mean, I'm sure this is not happening, but part of me hopes that this helps us all understand each other a little bit more because, you know, there have been times, I think, if you look at today versus two years ago, um, where big chunks of America are like, have had to make the other side's argument, right? So the groups that were saying, I don't know, back the blue versus like defund the police are now, you know, talking about defunding the FBI. And then the other side's like, hang on, we need these guys. Right. And like, there's this, maybe some, at some level, some deep level, there's a recognition that like, 
there's there are some systems and institutions in place that we definitely need in America to maintain the public safety that benefits all of us, right? They don't get it right all the time, but we need to agree that there's some semblance of organization there that is necessary and good for our society. Um, and if we don't have that, we are all less safe. So anyway, I guess we'll all just wait now and find out what happens, what the DOJ does with this information. And I'm sure more information will be coming out um, this weekend and probably in the weeks and months to come. Um, but this is a big deal. As we said before we started, this is unprecedented in American history. And um, I like the idea of making history. I don't like when it's for things like this. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Bailey, thank you for being here today. Of course. Thank you, Andy. Scott, thanks for being here, man. Always a pleasure. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. Please remember that the next election is the primary runoff on uh, October, excuse me, August 23rd. That's in uh, less than two weeks from the day today that we record. August 23rd's primary runoff. You very well may have an election. If you're a Republican, um, you have a higher chance of having a runoff because there's more Republican candidates, but you can go to uh, the election board and look at your sample ballot to see if you have one. Uh, and then, of course, the general election is on November 8th. Also, don't forget, mark your calendars that night for the election night show at the Tower Theater here in Oklahoma City. We will be there. Um, it's going to be a great time. I've got a meeting about it this week. I think we've got a band lined up. Um, it'd be great. If listeners, by chance, uh, your company, your business, is inter- or you as an individual, heck, uh, are as interested in sponsoring, being a sponsor of the election night show and seeing your name on the big screen and being mentioned by us, um, we would love um, to talk. We, we operate from donations and sponsorships, and so this is our kind of deal. It's a great event. Last time we did it in 2018, we drew a crowd of about 700 people in person, several hundred more online because we live streamed it. Um, it'll be similar this year, I'm sure. Uh, so hit us up. Um, you can send an email to podcast at letsfixthis.org. All right. On that note, remember that decisions are made by those who show up and have a good week. <laughs>